In the midst of all the blessings Jesus listed, the passage that we looked at last week, in the midst of all these pronouncements of God's favour upon the little people, we read the peculiar blessing that belongs to Jesus' followers. We read this in chapter 5 of Matthew and verse 11. You are blessed, speaking to his disciples, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. It is a peculiar blessing to Jesus' disciples, that of persecution. And it's a blessing that comes because God has called us to be part of his work, to be fishers of men, as we saw two weeks ago. And we fish as we live lives that are observably, obviously, unambiguously different. We are to be salt. We are to be light. We are to be like a city on a hill. You can't hide it. It's there for all to see. And as we go about that work, what happens? Well, verse 16, and this was the kind of the the point. This is the purpose. This is the why. This is the bit that needs to grip your heart. In the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This, that verse right there, verse 16, is the heart of it. Here is the why. Why would we go about living in such a way that we stand out and that others persecute us because of it? Because we want our Heavenly Father to be glorified. We want God to receive what is due to Him. We want Him to be honoured, to be praise that is spoken well of. We want what belongs to him to be his, namely all of ourselves and all that exists. At the heart of the Christian life is the recognition of who God is and who we are and therefore the deep-seated desire for his glory. Now, if you don't understand that, if that hasn't captured your mind and your heart, then it needs to. The rest really won't work. The heart is what drives us. This desire for God's glory is what motivates our living. If you don't have it, you're going to find the Christian life a very tough one and in the end, kind of pointless. But last week, having seen the why it is that we live this way, this week we're going to focus on how. Okay, if we are supposed to be salt, if we are supposed to be light, if we are supposed to live in such a way that we stand out and others glorify God because of it, how do we do that? And what does that look like? Now, today we're going to focus primarily on the principle, on on the idea that we need to have in our minds. And we're going to see one example worked out in this passage. And then over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to take us through a bunch more of these examples of the what's, of how it plays out. Let me show you. Let's let's just get straight to it. Here is the heart of the matter. Here it is. Here is the how you and I as followers of Jesus are going to live as salt, as light, as a city on a hill, such that others will glorify God. Come down to chapter 5 in Matthew and verse 20. Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. There's the principle. 
Righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Or to put it the other way around, this, this is kind of as the negative, to put it as the positive, for those who belong in the kingdom of heaven, those who are Jesus' followers, his disciples, their righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, let's just be clear, okay? Unambiguous and, 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 and clear, we're not talking about salvation by works. I am not saying you need to be a good enough person to get, be able to get into heaven. What I am saying is that those who belong in heaven, God transforms to make them a certain kind of person. Salvation is only ever by grace, God's gift, through faith as we trust in Jesus, not from our own works, that no one may boast. Okay, let's be very clear about that. However, the characteristic that defines those who belong to the kingdom of heaven is that their righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees. In fact, that was God's plan kind of from the beginning. I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, all the way back to Deuteronomy. I can't help but wonder whether either Jesus or Matthew had been reading through Deuteronomy recently and had all of these things in the back of their mind. Come back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to read from verses 5 to 8. As Moses is speaking to God's people, he's bringing God's word to them. He said this, look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it, as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call to him. And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? You see, from the very beginning, as Israel lived God's way, the nations would see, wow, who has a God like that? Who has a God who teaches them how to live in such an astonishing way? What understanding, what wisdom the way of this God brings. And I've got to tell you, that's a pretty potent mix in our current world. As our society moves further and further away from Christendom, as we lose the Christian heritage we've been blessed to grow up in, all the more will we stand out as we live God's way. It's a good thing. It'll be harder for us. It's very nice when everyone around you lives the same way you do. It's going to be harder, but it will make it much more obvious who the Christians are and who are not. How many non-Christians are on your Facebook feed at the moment defending the unborn? Declaring that sexual relationships and intimacy are rightfully between a man and a woman in marriage. These are the beginnings of the spaces and the places in our consciousness and in our social morality, whereas Christians, we will stand out. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, that sentence has a really big problem. You see, the Pharisees were awesome. Now look, the Pharisees get a bad rap. If you've been at church any amount of time, you will probably have heard us dog on the Pharisees, right? They, we call them hypocrites. We call them all sorts of bad things. However, the Pharisees were the righteous ones. 
These guys were seriously concerned for obeying as much as they thought and could and understood of the law. These were guys who would take it to the nth degree to ensure that they were being righteous. They, they, they would tithe, they would give 10%, not just of their income, but of their little home garden, of their herbs. Can you imagine growing a rosemary plant and you've got to count 10 of the little sprigs and every 10th one you're going to chop off and donate it to the church. Every tomato plant you grow, you're going to count 10 tomatoes and pick one off and that goes to church. That was the level of dedication these guys had. It's as if for us, imagine one day you go to the shops, you pay for cash for something, not that anyone does anymore, but imagine just hark back to that day when we did these things. You pay with cash and you get too much change in return. If you were a Pharisee, you would count that as income and go and give 10% of what you got as the wrong change to the church. That's the level of righteousness these guys had. What do you mean, Jesus, that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees? Well, what we need to understand, first of all, is Jesus' relationship with the law. Come back up to verse 17, the start of our passage from today. Don't think, Jesus says, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Now again, it's another sort of quirky sentence. What do you mean, fulfill the law? I mean, it would make sense if you said, keep the law. I came to obey the rules. How do you fulfill rules? Well, first of all, we need to understand that when Jesus talks about the law, he doesn't just mean rules. In fact, for them, law, the law, was the first five books of the Old Testament, what we have now in the Old Testament, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books together, they called the law. It was kind of the books that Moses wrote. And within those books, there's all sorts of things. Yes, there are rules and regulations, but there's history and narrative and promises and prophecy There's a whole lot of things tied up in it together. And note that Jesus is saying more than just the law even. He's talking about the law and the prophets. Really, the whole Old Testament. I came, Jesus says, to fulfill the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament is an unfinished book. If you were a Jew today, you would have an incomplete book. You wouldn't know the ending. It's a little bit like an Agatha Christie story or a Sherlock Holmes. Personally, I prefer. Um, they're kind of very similar, right? So you've got the whole narrative where this mystery is laid out before you and there's little clues here and there and you kind of maybe get a sense of what's going on. But then, in the very last chapter, it all gets revealed. Right? Poirot or Sherlock Holmes all of a sudden says, well, hang on, you missed this clue and that clue. And if you put it all together, here is the picture. And you go, wow. It's usually cheating because they don't give you enough details in the chapters along the way for you to feel like you could solve the mystery yourself. In the last chapter, there's always a reveal of some sort that you missed. Actually, it's kind of exactly like the Bible. No one would have seen that it worked this way and that these things connected together and that the solution, the answer, the revelation, the fulfillment was Jesus. 
sort of visible, but not really. And it's there the whole way through the Old Testament. They're these puzzles that without Jesus don't make any sense. Let me give you some examples. God said to his people, build a temple and I will live in it. Okay, I guess we'll build you a temple. But how does that work? How could you have the creator of heaven and earth, the one who makes all things, who is infinite, living in a brick building? Solomon himself, as he built the temple, said, well, I don't get it, but I guess we're going to do it. Well, of course, Jesus comes along. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And they all think he's mad. What they don't realize is he's talking about himself and his body. See, of course it doesn't make sense that God is going to live in a building, that the place where humanity and God meet will be a tent in the tabernacle. Of course that doesn't make sense. It shows you, it points towards Jesus, who is the place, the one where God and humanity meet. Oh, we talk about the sacrifices, right? All through the Old Testament, the system of sacrifices. You have to sacrifice a goat, a bull, a lamb, a pigeon. They die in your place. That's all well and good, but how on earth does that work? How can an innocent lamb die in my place? Well, it doesn't make sense until Jesus comes and you understand that he is the innocent lamb who is sacrificed for atonement. Or what about the prophets who were to come? As Moses speaks of a greater prophet than he who would come, and you think, well, that's impossible, until Jesus comes along and God himself says, this is my son, listen to him. Or the age of the Spirit. I want to read for you from Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, the law and the prophets and what they looked forward to. Listen to this picture from Ezekiel 36 and verse 22. I'm going to read from 22 to 28. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will honour the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. Does that sound familiar? A day is coming, God said, when people will see through you, my people, my character, my holiness, my glory. And how is that going to happen? Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land I gave your fathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. The law and the prophets saw a day in which God's character would be revealed to the whole world because God himself would transform his people. 
The fulfillment of the law would bring about new hearts, a new spirit, no longer the law written on tablets of stone external to the body, but now written within us, causing obedience. You see, when Jesus says, our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. He's not saying you're going to have to work harder. You are somehow going to have to be an amazing person. No, what Jesus is talking about is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. As the new age of the spirit comes in, of course we are going to be more righteous than the Pharisees for a new thing has occurred where the law is now inside us. Obedience comes from the heart desiring God's glory no longer is external to us such that it's a law that oppresses and in the end achieves nothing. You see, here's the principle. Here's the how you and I as disciples of Jesus are going to live as salt and light in a city on a hill. It's how we are going to stand out such that we'll be persecuted to the glory of God. It's by living by the Spirit, living this transformed life that God does, God transforms with the law that is written in here, no longer out there somewhere. A desire to obey rather than to simply tick the box. A desire to maximally observe what God would have of us, to live his way from the heart. I want to put it to you slightly differently to, to help explain what it looks like, to show. And it's the contrast between the minimum application and the maximum observance. The minimum application and the maximum observance. See, the rest of, this, well, not quite all of it, but a whole bunch of the Sermon on the Mount from here on is going to be these contrasts. The contrast between perhaps what the Pharisee would do, the minimum observance of the law, and what we, empowered by the Spirit, God's people, ought to be seeking to do, the maximum application and observance. You see, the legalist, the, the minimum application person, does something like this. First of all, they want to very clearly define the rule. Well, hang on a second. What does that law mean exactly? Just let's, let's work out the words for a moment and talk about it and, and make sure that we understand what it all means before we get too carried away. And then having worked out what the law says precisely, the minimum application person starts to look for exceptions. Well, hang on, but what about in this case or in that case or in these circumstances? Or what if somebody else does this first? Do I still have to obey this law? And then they seek to reinterpret it based on the current understanding of things and the modern day morality as if morality changes somehow, right? But no, well, we, we know better or we know different or circumstances have changed. And so then they rewrite the rule or the regulation to something that sounds like the law, but really isn't the law at all. Let me give you some examples. Think for a moment about tax observance. 
Now, what does the minimum application person do, the legalist? Well, let's define tax for a moment and let's try and work out what the exceptions all are and then, you know, let's where are the lines and how close can I get to? And we end up in a situation where we have lawyers whose entire lives are dedicated to tax and really, really rich people make them rich in order to pay the least amount of tax possible. That's where you end up. Or you think of a completely different example that's not legal, like about legal matter. Think about students and it comes time to write an essay and what does the minimum application person do? Well, they go, which of these 10 questions is the easiest one? And I'm going to choose that one. Now, what's my word count? Okay, I can do plus or minus 10%. So I just take 10% off and that's exactly what I need to do in order to pass because I don't care about education, which is what this is supposed to be about. That's the minimum I need to do. Let's do that. Or an everyday example. The speed limit says 60. Well, the minimum observance says, well, hang on a second, they can only detect up to plus or minus 5%, so I can do 65 and no one will ever notice. I'll just drive it that, won't I? Now, let me contrast that with the maximum application. The person who wants to obey. You see, rather than trying to find exceptions and ways around it, The person who is concerned for the maximum application looks for the principle behind the law and then seeks to apply that. You see, let's talk about tax for a moment, right? What's the the point of taxation? Why does it exist? Well, it exists because we want to fund the common good. We want to pool our money together to achieve things that we couldn't otherwise and to care for those who need to be cared for. That's what we're doing with our tax dollars. Now, just forget for a moment about the politics and whether you agree or disagree with how the tax money is being spent, all the rest of it. Can you imagine a society in which every individual from deep down in the heart cared about other people and wanted their own resources to be used for the common good? You wouldn't even need... Like our tax legislation is like... It's books and books and books. You'd just need a single sheet, right, that said... Give lots for the common good. And everyone will be like, yeah, let's do it. Here, have my money. And so we end up in situations where you see Christians look for ways to voluntarily tax themselves. That is, we find organisations that are doing what the government isn't doing and we give them money to go and do the good that ought to be done. And so we financially support the Church Missionary Society or Anglican Aid or Anglicare or our missionaries. Right, the student who looks at all 10 questions and goes, the principle is I want to be educated. I want to do all of these essays. They all look so good. In fact, three and five look really important, so important, then I need a higher word count to be able to deal with them well. And you go to the lecturer and you say, excuse me, sir, can I do all 10 questions? Would you mind marking them so that I can make sure I learn the most I can? I'm not sure that lecturer would enjoy that, but... Right, The speed limit is there to care for others and I care for them so much that I will drive below it. Do you get the difference? The legalist looks for the minimum they can get away with. The person empowered by God's Spirit wants to find the principle behind the rule and live it to the full. Now Jesus is going to turn to some applications of this principle. We're going to deal with one of them today. 
Adam will, uh, will deal with a few next week and then Joe a few more the week after that as we keep working through the sermon. You see, as we come down to verses 21 and onwards, the law said, you have heard it said that, do not murder. Now, what does the minimalist do with that? Well, first of all, let's define it. What do you mean, murder? Uh, I mean, do you just mean killing? Because that's, you know, you you might kill animals. Does it mean don't kill animals? Does it mean don't kill plants? I mean, if you're going to eat food at all, you're going to have to kill something. So it can't mean that. So it has to mean something different. Let's let's keep working at it. Let's define it a little bit different. Okay, well, does it mean killing people? Um, But then you start to find the exceptions. Well, hang on. What about if it's with wartime or it's capital punishment or if it's in self-defense? Uh, what about if, if we start to talk about modern morality? Is abortion okay? Is euthanasia okay? I mean, where, where exactly do we define murder? And so you end up with this narrow, tight definition, something along the lines of intentional and with malice aforethought. That's the only time when a killing is murder. But friends, we desire God's glory. We want God's character to be displayed in us. The Spirit is at work such that we desire not just to observe the minimum requirement of the law, but to live God's way. What's the principle behind do not murder? Well, it's live in peace, live in harmony, do no good to others. In fact, Jesus will go on to say, love your neighbour as yourself. That is the principle that lies behind do not murder. And so the maximizer, the one who has the spirit, lives that out without discord, without hatred. So concerned for unity that if that person is aware that someone else has a problem with them, Jesus says, leave the sacrifice at the altar and go and sort it out first. Go and be reconciled to them. Right, and so he says in verse 23, right, if you're offering your gift, there's a remember that someone has something against you, go and sort it out, be reconciled with them. Even anger is like murder at that point. I mean, you, you hate them such that you wish harm on them, that you don't carry it out, doesn't really matter. You've thought the thought. You see, the legalist looks for the minimum possible, Whereas a disciple of Jesus opens God's word to see what else is God going to do in me? How else will God transform me to live like him? It's not what can I get away with. It's what's the most that I can do in love. You just think about God's character for a moment. Does that not capture who he is? The God who sacrificed his own son for his enemies. There is his character. All that I can and more for the good of someone else. Now look, I can think of at least three dangers with this particular teaching. Some people might hear this and feel guilty. Ah, that's not me. Man, I, I don't love my neighbors like that. I'm, I was angry just yesterday. I hate that person. I'm bearing a grudge against them and it's been two decades. Some of us might be tempted to feel complacency. Well, if it's the spirit that does the work in me, if it's God who's going to change me, I don't have to do anything. 
if God doesn't change me, well, then it won't happen. So some of us might even be tempted to end up in legalism again. We've just raised the bar higher. It's not enough to tithe your mint and your dill. You've got to tithe it all now. And Friends, the, the antidote to all of those, the solution is to remember the gospel of grace. The gospel that Jesus came preaching, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Repent for the kingdom of God has come near. See, if this fills you with guilt, friends, you've got to remember salvation is by grace. You are forgiven of every failure that you've ever had and ever will. Jesus died for it. It's okay. Your salvation is safe in his hands. You are his child. This is his work that he will do over your lifetime in you. Rest in him. Trust in him. Seek him. But mind you, if you are complacent, then hear what Jesus says, repent. Your righteousness ought to surpass that of the Pharisees. If you're looking at your own life and you think, well, there's zero righteousness to be seen here, you ought to take a moment and take stock. For the Spirit of God has been promised to his disciples to work in them to transform their hearts that they might love and seek and cherish righteousness. If you don't, well, why not? And friends, if you are concerned about legalism and you think you're going to end up just having to tick the boxes and cross the T's and dot the I's and it's a burden upon you, remember, this is the Spirit's work to transform us from the heart, to free us, no longer weighed down by law, but compelled by love. A love that must begin with the love of God. We've got to know God, know that the Lord is good. We've got to know God such that we want his glory. We're back to that heart question again. We're back to that desire from within to see God honoured and displayed and glorified and praised in our lives and in everyone we know around us and in the whole world. And if that hasn't gripped us, then that is where we must start. It's no surprise, it's no, of course it isn't, Jesus did it on purpose, that he linked commandments one and two together. When someone asked him what's the greatest, Jesus said, love the Lord your God. That's where it starts. But the second is like it, he said. Love your neighbour as yourself. And I take it that as we learn to love God, the love for our neighbour flows out of it. Learn to love God. And so if you find yourself thinking, well, I'd love that to be me. I, I, I don't really seem to be close to that. You need to love God. And that means reminding yourself of the gospel. That means spending time in scriptures and dwelling upon it. That means being soaked with who he is, valuing Jesus above all else. It means learning to see his ways and not your own. It means being a follower of Jesus. That as we learn to love him, he will transform us, that we might love others too. And so being salt and light in that way, everyone around us will give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We thank you for the ways in which you have worked throughout all of history 
to bring in this age, the age of the Spirit, the age in which you have given us new hearts that desire you and love you and want to live for you. And so, Father, we ask, please, that as your disciples, you would make us salt and you would make us light, that you would make us unambiguously, obviously different, that you would transform us, that out of love for you would flow love for others. And, Father, we pray especially for those who wrestle with anger, hatred, bitterness and resentment. Free them. Free them of that, Father. Even now, may there be deep forgiveness and please would you work reconciliation and restoration in our midst. Where there is any enmity, may it be dissolved by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, both our love for you and more importantly, your love for us. Father, be with all those who hold on to grudges from wrongs done long ago and break that grudge, that they would release it. And Father, we ask this because we want your character displayed in us. You who had every right to bear a grudge against us, instead paid the price for forgiveness. And we ask, Father, that your character would so shine through us that glory would abound to you in our area, in our surrounds, in our lives. Amen.